Chapter 7 The next day brought with it a torrential downpour. Lightning forked across the sky, and thunder rumbled. The road Link traveled on quickly was thick with mud, causing Spirit's hooves to stick and suck with every step. Link wore both the hood given to him by Telma, as well as his full cloak, yet it did little to block the rain. Spirit plodded slowly, their path beginning to take them ever higher, and it became apparent to Link that his trip to Hateno Village would almost certainly be delayed by a day. Still, he did what he could to press on. He rode parallel to the river for a time, before it angled away from him, and he found himself riding down into a valley. He was surprised to see what appeared to be the remains of an old horse track just south of the road he was on. In the center of the muddy track were several old buildings, most of which had collapsed over the years, but there remained a few that stood. He dismounted, boots squelching in the mud, and took hold of Spirit's halter to lead him towards the old track. As he crossed past a broken gate, he saw a sign that said, Equestrian Riding Course and Training Center. Interested, he glanced back up at Spirit and met the large horse's eyes. He wasn't sure, but he thought that his horse did not seem too terribly impressed. Deciding that, perhaps, he'd already been traveling alone for too long, he continued towards the building in the center of the camp that appeared still standing. As he approached, he noticed an orange glow coming from one of the windows, Someone had already apparently taken shelter from the storm within. Link hesitated as he neared the door. Did he wish to disturb whoever was in there? Another thunder crash, and heavier rainfall gave him his answer. He knocked on the door. After a few moments, he knocked again. When he received no answer after the second series of knocks, he sighed and opened the door. It swung slowly open on rusty wooden hinges. Hello? he said, as he looked into the single-room building. I wish to see if I could... He fell silent. Staring back at him from within the building was not a huddled group of Hylians. Instead, a group of Bokoblins and two of the larger Moblins had gathered around a raging fire that was already likely too large for the meager fireplace. One of the Moblins stood and held a long, rusted blade, and two of the Bokoblins were running to grab their respective weapons from a nearby wall, which in this case seemed to be a pair of pitchforks. Swearing loudly, Link took several steps back, pulling Spirit back from the house. The thunder seemed to rumble in time with his hammering heart. He quickly pulled his cloak away from him, throwing it over Spirit's saddle, and slapped the horse's rump, sending him trotting away. Link pulled his sword from his sheath and waited for the creatures to come out after him. The moblin stepped into the doorway, just out of the rain, and roared at him in a loud, threatening tone. It held its sword lazily, its tip against the wooden floor of the cabin. Behind it, Link could see the two Bokoblins armed with pitchforks, lifting their weapons over their heads and calling out after him. Despite their threatening postures, and presumably equally threatening words, none of the monsters left the dry warmth of the cabin. He continued to slowly back away, watching the monsters in the doorway warily, while keeping his eyes out to the sides for potential ambushes. No ambushes came, however and he soon reached Spirit, who snorted at him in irritation. The Moblin roared at him once again and pounded a meaty fist into its chest. 
A warning, he thought. Sign. He mounted Spirit and spurred him into motion. The horse responded with the same plodding walk that he had been using all day, clearly as unhappy with their current predicament as Link was. Behind them, the door to the cabin slammed shut with a muted thud. Link was in a foul mood for the rest of the day. The rain did eventually break around nightfall, but the night brought no relief from the chill that had soaked into his bones. When they reached the forest that stood only a few hours outside of Hateno Village, Spirit simply refused to go any further, snorting when Link tried to keep him moving. He had thought to try and keep walking to Hateno, but his horse made it clear that was not to be this night. Later, after he was finished cursing the stubborn horse, and he had built up a weak fire from what little semi-dry wood he was able to find, Link reflected that it would probably be better to ride into town during the day. Riding into Kakarika Village at night had nearly gone very poorly for him after all. He did make one last grumbled curse towards Spirit before rolling over and attempting to get some sleep while lying on a wet and cold cloak. A scream woke Link from his slumber early the next morning. The sun had only begun to lighten the sky overhead, and a cool fog had settled around Link in the forest. His little fire had long since sputtered out, and he felt no drier nor warmer now than he had been the previous day. Now, watch out! A woman's voice, followed by another woman's voice grunting in pain or exertion. He rose to his feet, fighting with the cloak wrapped around him. When he'd finally extricated himself from it, he began to hear the other noises. Snorts and laughs, inhuman grunts, and a familiar-sounding screech. Oh, goblins. At least three of them. Link grabbed his sword and shield, and took off in the direction of the sounds. It was difficult to see in the thick fog, but he followed the sounds of a struggle. He soon saw what looked like the glow of a torch, and moments later, he came upon the commotion. Two women each wearing simple clothes and boots, as well as backpacks, stood back to back at a small clearing surrounded by trees. One of them held a torch out in front of her, while the other had a short sword in her hand, though she did not seem to be holding it very expertly. The one with the sword was favoring one of her legs. They were surrounded by three bow goblins, two of which had clubs, and one that had a half of an old pitchfork. The nearest bow goblin holding a club turned and looked at him warily having heard the noises of Link's approach. Its expression grew covetous when it saw his sword. It ran at him, swinging its club in an easily predicted arc that he batted away with his shield. He stabbed the bow goblin through the chest, dropping it. One. The other two bow goblins were a little wiser than their fallen brethren, and split to come around Link, attacking from either side. The bow goblin with the half-pitchfork lunged forward with a war cry, while at the same time, its brethren on the other side swung its club at his head. He executed a backflip that took him out of range of both attacks, landing on the ground a few feet back. He nearly slipped on the wet grass, but dug his toes in and launched himself forward, first cutting down the club-wielding Bokoblin and blocking another stab by the pitchfork Bokoblin with a shield. Two. When the Bokoblin again attempted to stab Link with increasingly desperate motions, he knocked the pitchfork aside and thrust his sword into its stomach. Three. With the last of the Bokoblins disposed, Link turned back to the two women, breathing deeply. The woman with the sword leaned against the other one, still favoring one of her legs. The woman with the torch eyed Link with a mixture of awe and some fear. Wow, said the woman with the sword. 
She had shoulder-length brown hair and green eyes. See, Megan, I told you that we'd be fine so close to the village. Fine. Megan had short black hair and gray eyes. Her voice was shrill and near panicked. Yeah, we almost died. I told you that there had been Bokob incited around here and that it wasn't safe to go out until they'd been cleared away. Which they now have been. The woman named Nat eased herself down to the ground, placing her sword on the ground, and running her fingers down her leg to her ankle. She winced. Think I just sprained it. It's not bad. Are you both alright? Link asked. Oh! Megan looked back at Link, looking suddenly embarrassed. I'm sorry. Thank you for saving us. My sister insisted that we come out early to look for mushrooms. Truffles. Truffles. Megan said, shooting her sister an exasperated glance. We'd heard that there were monsters in the area, but she didn't think they would come so close to the village. You won't be complaining when I'm cooking dinner tonight, Nat said, carefully removing her boot. He could see her ankle was noticeably swollen, even in the flickering torchlight. Are you from Hateno Village? He stepped forward so that he was within the light of the torch. The mist still hung around them, making it hard to make out details through the shadows of the forest. Yes, I'm Megan, and this is Nat. You are... Link. I have a horse back at my camp, and I was traveling to the village anyway, so you're welcome to ride it back. I'll make sure you aren't attacked again. Nat tried placing weight on her foot again, and scowled, swearing softly. She looked up at Link, looking embarrassed. I guess I should. Megan, now that those bowcobbins are gone, why don't you keep looking? Together, the three of them began to slowly walk back to the village. He quickly found that it was better to keep quiet, lest something he say spur the sisters into another argument. Regardless, he found out some about the small village, which relied heavily on dye exports and farming to sustain itself. When asked, neither of the girls knew of any old woman named Pura, however, which concerned Link. When he asked about ancient Sheikah technology, the sisters mentioned an old building on a hill overlooking Hateno village. Neither of them knew much about what went on there, or who lived there, other than the fact that the man that lived there tended to be very secretive about his work, and they thought he had a young daughter. It did not sound very promising to Link, but it was a place to start. It only took a couple of hours before they reached the village. By then, the sun had properly risen, driving away the early morning mist, and blessedly bathing the trail in warm sunlight. When they rounded a bend in the road, the village finally came into view. The entire village appeared to be built on a series of hills of varying heights. Everything in the village had been built on the slopes of the hills, with the buildings nearest the entrance built at a considerably lower elevation than those farther away. Beyond the village, Link could see several larger hills with paths leading up to their peaks, and further than that, a massive snowy mountain. The buildings of Hateno were all made of simple brick and plaster, all with red-tiled roofs and very tall chimneys. Several windmills dotted the hills and fields. Near the village's entrance, several new buildings were in the process of being built. Oddly, these clashed with the other constructions in the village, built out of vibrantly painted wood with multiple stories and flat-topped roofs. They looked out of place in the otherwise idyllic village. The village bustled with activity. Farmers worked their fields. Children played in the streets. Villagers called out to each other, and a group of fairly large men walked with purpose towards the half-constructed houses. 
Blink found himself smiling as they passed under a wooden arch that marked the entrance to the village. A sleepy man stood there, holding a pitchfork, seemingly standing guard. The man was introduced by Megan as Thad, and it was his job that day to keep an eye on the road to Hatano. Thad asked about Nat's injuries, growing increasingly bewildered when she assured him that it was nothing, and that he shouldn't worry about the bow goblins in the forest anymore. Exasperated, Megan tried to explain, but Nat insisted they keep moving, spurring Spirit into the motion with her good leg. This resulted in a confused Thad taking off his straw hat and scratching his head as they walked away. Link grimaced inwardly. Would he quickly become known in this village as the savior of these two women? He supposed that was better than being known as the hero from legend. At least he could remember saving the women. Still, it was more attention than he wanted. As he pondered this, he noticed a strange structure tucked behind a few other buildings and houses in the village. It appeared made entirely of black stone, and was shaped into a roughly conical shape with a flared base and a flat top. A glowing orange Shika eye had been emblazoned upon it, over what looked a lot like one of the doors from the Chamber of Resurrection, still closed. What was that? Oh, that? Nat said when asked. No idea. Just started glowing like that. What, a week ago, Megan? He felt the shiver run down his back. A week ago. How long had it been since he woke? Had it been a week? He could do little to investigate it now, as Nat continued leading them deeper into the village. Somewhere along the way, she'd taken Spirit's reins from him and rode him with a reasonable degree of confidence, though it was clear her ankle still pained her. Nat and Megan's house was located next to a large, open-fronted shop decorated with colorful sheets, banners, and clothing. The Hateno dye shop that Link had heard about from the women. According to Megan, the dyes made by this shop were exported as far as the Girdle Highlands and Rito Village. Link found the sight of the shop to be a little fascinating. Inside the open-fronted shop, he could see fabrics of an impressive array of colors displayed outside, with even more examples of colors inside. Once they reached the house, Link assisted Nat in getting down off of Spirit. Megan took her arm once Nat was on the ground, supporting her. Once seeing the women safely home, he moved to take Spirit's reins in hand again. You're going already? Megan stopped him with wide eyes. When Link looked at her, her cheeks flushed some. I mean, you saved our lives. We should do something to repay you. At once he felt incredibly awkward. He didn't want repayment of any kind. He'd seen them in need and stepped in to help. Any decent person would have done so, right? He certainly hoped so. It's really all right. I need to try and find the person I came here for. At least let us cook you a meal, Nat piped in. Link was somewhat surprised. Of the two women, Megan had been the more grateful one thus far. He had expected Nat would just want to go inside and rest. Yes, it won't take long. I can get started on it right away. As soon as I get Nat settled, Megan nodded enthusiastically. Ah, he thought. Megan would be the one doing the actual cooking. Nat's willingness to offer made more sense now. Regardless, he wanted to continue on. But, well, a meal wouldn't hurt. He hadn't eaten anything that day, and it was already late in the morning. I suppose I can stay for a meal, he said. After securing Spirit outside of their house and providing him with a bucket of grain, Link followed the women in, feeling excited for a proper hot meal, which he hadn't had since leaving the stable. Sometime later, Link left the sister's house, well-fed and refreshed. 
They had insisted he come back that evening for another meal, and he told them that he would, if he was able. Beyond providing him food, however, they had also helped him get the lay of the land, including the location of the local inn and the probable location of Pura, or at least where he should start his search. With this knowledge in hand, he led Spirit over a bridge that stretched over a small creek that bisected the town and continued up the hill. He spotted the inn, a two-storied building with a large patio. It had a small stable next to it, where a man that looked to be roughly Link's age, not that he was exactly certain of his own age, really, eyed him with hawkish eyes. He wasn't the only person in town that was looking at Link, either. While the town certainly didn't seem to be unwelcoming to travelers and visitors, Link supposed that they likely didn't see strangers too often. Thankfully, none of them stopped him, as he led Spirit past the inn and continued on the path that zigzagged up the hill towards the strange building that overlooked the entire town. It would be a long walk, so he was heartened to see smoke rising from its distant chimney. At least someone was home. The building at the top of the hill was odd, to say the least. It looked as though it had been once a large windmill, with the wind blades long removed. A house had been built around the base of the windmill, and another structure appeared to have been added to the top of the windmill, with wooden steps spiraling around it up to the room at its peak. A massive telescope had been set up on the second landing, pointing south. Atop the old windmill's tower was a guardian. He stared up at the inert form, its six legs draped down over the tower. It seemed eerie to just see it sitting there. The others that Link had seen had all been seemingly frozen or destroyed in the middle of battle, but this one, it must have been brought here from somewhere else, but how could they have lifted it and placed it all the way up there? He approached the door to the building. Hesitantly, he raised a fist and knocked. He waited for a few moments before the door was flung open by a little girl. She was Sheikah by the look of her gray-white hair, wore bright red spectacles, and had a truly strange-looking golden bow in her hair made to look like an owl's face, with shining blue eyes and a beak. She looked up at Link, seemingly irritated, but then gasped sharply. She took a step back from him, eyes wide. Oh! She had the Sheikah slated his hip, and then she gazed up at his face, studying him. Oh! You must be here to see the director. The look of shock was masked by a sudden business-like expression. Link was not sure what to make of the little girl before him. She didn't look like she could be any older than six or seven, but there was something to her eyes that made him feel strangely uncomfortable. I... Yes. I was sent here by Impa, of Kokorika Village. She told me to look for her sister, Pura. Is she... The girl's lip twitched, and he noticed that she was grabbing the hem of her little white dress with both of her fists. Oh yes, the director is in the back. She thumbed over her shoulder at another figure at the back of the room. It was a Sheikah man, who eyed Link and the girl with pursed lips. Oh, I was hoping to find Pura here, Link said, frowning. He looked back at the girl. But I will, uh, talk to the director, thanks. He began towards the man when he heard the girl behind him snickering. He frowned and glanced back, just in time to see her straighten and force a serious expression on her face again. He sighed and continued toward the Sheikah man, who he noted looked increasingly exasperated. As he walked across the spacious room, he began to notice the objects inside of it. Off to the one side, 
was one of the large stalactite-like stones and pedestals like he'd found in the towers. There was also some pieces of machinery that looked a lot like pieces of guardians. Mostly, however, there was just an incredible number of books and loose sheets of paper with cramped writing on them scattered all about the room. They formed piles and stacks all over the floor, on the table in the center of the room, on the shelves and desks to the peripheries of the room. It was chaotic. In fact, the only place that wasn't chaotic was the corner where the Sheikah man stood. His corner was neat and well-organized, with books lining a large number of bookshelves. Link wondered how he could keep his corner so clean while letting the rest of the room fall into such disarray. Good afternoon, sir, the Sheikah man said when Link reached him. Link saw him glance down towards the Sheikah slate on his hip and grew self-conscious when a look of recognition passed over the man's eyes. Oh, that is the actual Sheikah slate, isn't it? He looked back up, eyes discerning. That would make you Master Link, would it not? Yes, Link said, trying to keep himself from grimacing. Yet another person that seemed to know of him, while he still felt blinded by his lack of memories. Impa sent me. Oh yes, Lady Impa did warn us that you would be coming soon. We received a pigeon from her yesterday. I assume she probably sent one to Master Robbie as well. The Sheikah man looked thoughtful, tapping his lips with his finger. Perhaps I should do so, just in case. I'm certain he would like to know of your return as well. Link had no idea who this Master Robbie was, nor did he particularly care at the moment. I was sent here to speak to Pura. My Sheikah slate is not working properly, according to Impa. She told me that Pura might be able to fix it. What? The little girl ran up behind him, and before he could react, snatched the Sheikah slate off his belt, inspecting it. Hey! Link said alarmed. The girl ignored him and scampered over to the table in the center of the room, climbing onto a tall stool and setting the Sheikah slate down. She began to tap the screen furiously. Link pursued her, worried that this child was going to break the Sheikah slate before he even had a chance to speak with Pura. I don't think you should be playing with that. It isn't a toy. Why don't you give it back to me before it... He trailed off, eyeing the device. Instead of showing the various rooms available, the screen on the Sheikah slate now showed a great deal of text, which the girl was reading with apparent interest. The Sheikah man stepped up behind him, looking over his shoulder at the girl and the device. When Link looked back at him, he merely shrugged, smiling warily. Master Link, my name is Simon. I'm actually the director's assistant. Let me introduce you to the real director and the woman you seek, Miss Pura. Check it! The girl spun in her stool to grin up at Link. She winked at Link in a childish way. Had you fooled? You really thought that Simon was the director, didn't you, Linky? Linky? Link thought, staring at the girl with a confused expression. He looked back at Simon. I think there might be some kind of misunderstanding. Impa told me I was looking for her sister. Uh-huh, said the girl. She told me that her sister would be here. At hot... The girl didn't even seem to care that Link was addressing Simon, and kept interrupting Link as he spoke. I don't see how Impa's sister could be so adorable, sweet, cute as a button, young. Well, click snap, that's a fun story, the girl said, snapping her fingers to draw Link's attention back to her. You see, I was experimenting with a rune that would reverse the aging process, and snap, here I am. The youngest 120 or so year old woman you'll ever meet. Your Impa's sister? The one and the same, 
She snapped her fingers as if suggesting to Link that he needed to keep up. Impa's my baby sister. She seemed to find this quite funny, as she giggled after saying it. My much older baby sister. Somehow, Link found himself accepting this. He himself was well over a hundred years old. He'd spoken to a spirit and a bodiless princess, fought monsters, and found out he was supposed to defeat an ancient evil monster. What was one more impossible surprise? Simon brought him another stool, and Link gratefully sat down. Then, Impa asked me to come see you. She said that the Sheikah Slate was missing some of its runes, and that some of them might actually be able to help me recover my lost memories. Oh, so you were right. The Shrine of Resurrection did cause memory loss. Good to know. She grabbed a piece of paper and a quill, scratched a line beneath a paragraph that she'd already written on, and began to quickly scribble notes under that line, speaking softly to herself as she did so. As expected, after 100 years in the slumber of restoration, subject has lost all memories. Noted. She punctuated the statement by tapping the quill on the page and replacing it in the ink pot. Do you think she's right? Will the other rooms help me recover my memories? She looked at him with a raised eyebrow. How am I supposed to know? I work on machines and ancient technology, not highly in brains. Her eyes fell back down to the Sheikah Slate, tapping her lip curiously. Now, I need to figure out why these runes disappeared. They were there 100 years ago when I put you in the Shrine of Resurrection. You put me in the shrine? She sighed dramatically and snatched up her quill, beginning to write again. Subject appears to be very persistent after 100 years of slumber. Perhaps side effect of memory loss? Uncertain. We'll continue further after work is complete on Chica's light. With that, he had been dismissed. Pura turned back to inspecting the Sheikah slate, waving one hand at him in a shooing motion. Feeling confused and more than a little frustrated, he did as she suggested, walking back outside to give her space. Before too long, Simon brought out a cup of tea, apologizing for Pura's eccentricities, but assuring Link that she would get the Sheikah slate fixed in no time. It was some time before Simon was sent out again, this time to inform Link that Pura would be keeping the Sheikah Slate overnight to keep working on restoring its full functionality. He lamented the fact that they did not have a guest bed, and that Link would probably be more comfortable down at the inn in the village. As the air had already begun to cool noticeably with the late afternoon, Link had to agree with him. He began back down the hill. The descent went by much faster than the ascent, thankfully, and he was able to reach Hateno Village before the sun had set, though just barely. His first stop was the inn, where he had paid a handful of his rupees for a bed and a spot in the stable for spirit. The innkeeper also offered him a meal, but he declined, remembering his promise to visit Mangan and Nat for supper. The rest of the evening passed pleasantly for Link. The two sisters seemed to fight more often than not, but they clearly cared for one another. They also had plenty of stories to share. Nat, particularly, was able to tell Link of several notable legends in the area including that of an evil demon-possessed statue that was supposed to be hidden somewhere near the village, and of a hero from their village that bravely fought off dozens of guardsmen at Fort Hateno before perishing. This story made Link distinctly uncomfortable, and he quickly changed the subject. The story stuck with Link as the night wore on, however, and he was still thinking about it as he lied down at the inn that night. Village legends spoke of a hero that had grown up and lived in this very village, a knight that fought the Guardians in one grand final battle 
at Fort Hateno. He ultimately died, but his sacrifice prevented the complete destruction of Hateno village, as the Guardians had been on their way to raise Hateno to the ground, as they had done so with so many other towns and settlements. It struck too close to home for Link. He had no memories of living in Hateno village, or battling Guardians, but Nat had assured him that the story was true, and that the old hero's house remained to this day, unoccupied. He decided he would have to ask Purr about the story in the morning. That decided, he fell into a fitful sleep. <laughs>